Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. In this episode of Sustainability and You, we have an interview with a difference. Three of our young ambassadors interview a young entrepreneur, founder and CEO of Chumelo, Georgia Stewart. You will know that we are passionate about giving voice to the next generation of leaders. So what better way to do that than hand over the reins to our young ambassadors? The ever-impressive Georgia Stewart founded Chumelo in January 2018 to help every investor have positive impact. Chumelo's solution gives retail investors and pension members visibility over their underlying fund holdings and a shareholder voice on issues they care about at companies they own, such as gender equality or climate change. Their white label software plugs into existing investment platforms and pension portals, driving positive engagement between investment providers and their clients and ultimately influencing better stewardship across the asset management industry. Georgia shares her journey and leadership challenges engaging with a roundtable discussion with our young ambassadors. It is my great pleasure to welcome Georgia Stewart, founder and CEO of Chumelo. We have a podcast with a difference today because three of our young ambassadors are going to lead on the interview. Um, so I'd like to welcome Philip Shah, Stephanie Glover and Carolina Desio Wittre. We've turned the interview format on its head because it felt only right to have three exceptional young leaders in the sustainability field interviewing an exceptional young CEO. Our audience will know that one of the reasons that we founded Sustainability in You was to give voice to the next generation of leaders who will individually and collectively inherit our current legacy of decision-making but who themselves will devise and lead on better solutions to the race to zero. So it's my great pleasure to hand over this space to you all for what I know will be an inspiring conversation. Thank you, Josephine, and welcome, Georgia. I think Carolina, Stephanie and I are very excited to talk to you today. And I think it's also fair to say that, you know, in a still fairly young career, you've already achieved a lot and inspired many so jumping right in, can you just walk us through a little bit um, your journey on how you got to where you are today? Sure. So thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here with all of you. And in terms of my journey, I suppose I started at university 
we were, me and my co-founders were all studying natural sciences and I was specifically involved in a sustainable investment campaign at Cambridge and basically trying to get the university to be a more proactive shareholder itself. So Cambridge has got six billion pounds invested as an endowment and it's invested through various fund managers who then go on to invest it in various companies. And because of that disintermediation exists between the university's pot of money and where that money actually ends up being invested, we aren't really able to be responsible shareholders. We don't really know where that money's going, what shares it's buying, and we can't vote or voice our opinion as a shareholder because we're kind of indirectly owners of those stocks. And so we ended up focusing on a campaign in 2016, which was a, a climate vote that was happening at Chevron. And so we ran a campaign to get universities around the world to put pressure on their fund managers to vote in favour of this climate vote, which was which would then force Chevron as a company to do more on climate change. And it was a pretty successful campaign. We ended up getting a lot of press, a lot of you know, thousands of people, professors and, and university um, students and people from the investment councils signed our open letter. And uh, there was a, a really strong vote in favour of the climate vote at Chevron. And I guess that for me is what uh, made me realize how shareholder engagement was a really great opportunity to create change or to kind of force change at companies, not just on climate, but on other issues like gender and human rights. And I think forcing change at those companies that have such a huge footprint on communities and the environment and just society at large, as well as locally, um, it is a you know, really fast way to solve some of the problems that we're facing. And that's why we then founded Tomato, really, was because we saw an opportunity there an opportunity to get people more connected to their investments and have normal people understand where their money's going and be able to have a voice on some of these issues which are being voted on all the time, but which people just have no connection to, even though it's it's their money being being used to buy the shares in those companies. No, it's a fascinating story, actually. And just adding to that, I think on Friday, you've been appointed as the newest member of the International Governance Committee for Aviva. So uh, congratulations. Focusing on Tomello for a little bit, can you just give a bit more detail on the clients that you serve, but also importantly, how you think you're impacting um, the pension fund world? Yes. So um, I guess building on what I was saying before, what we ended up building was um, a, basically a platform that people could log on to and it would show them what companies their investments held. So for example, if you have a pension, you can log on to Tomello and you can see what companies you've got inside your pension and you can see what votes are coming up at Amazon or Google or Facebook. And you can have a voice on those votes. So if there's a vote on, you know, whether Amazon needs to elect another female to its board or whether um, Facebook should go into business with the Chinese government or, you know, I'm just using random examples here. But these are the types of things that get voted on, including obviously climate votes and, and human rights issues and CEO pay. And so you can use our platform to voice your opinion. And what we do in the background is then collect your opinion, aggregate it up with the thousands of other people who are voting on the platform and send it to the people who are actually placing the votes at these companies' um, meetings. So fund managers, usually, um, or it could be the endowment fund, you know, at Cambridge, for example, if, if that's who we were working for. So our clients, like really, we build for the end user. We build for the person like me who has a pension or who has um, a stocks and shares ISA in the UK or a 401k if you're in the US. But our clients um, are investment platforms and pension funds, 
people who buy our software to then give to their own end users. So it's a B2B2C business model. Mm-hmm. And then I guess in terms of impact, like it's a great question. It's very important. We obviously return to it all the time ourselves. We are trying to influence change in the real economy. So we're trying to get companies to make changes to the way they do business, whether that's the way they have governance in terms of like how diverse their, their boards are, or whether it's the way they actually deal with human rights in the Congo, um, if you're Tesla. And so really we're looking for real world outcomes and we want to change them and make things happen faster. And we can do that by gathering all these voices and putting more pressure on fund managers who are who are voting. And without the kind of accountability piece that Tomato provides, there is very little pressure on people in financial services to do like the mo- the most progressive thing or to make decisions that are difficult because no one is asking them these questions. It's not transparent. Um, every so often the media gets hold of is something a fund manager's done, which is awful, but they're kind of relying on that not happening um, and it doesn't happen very often. So ultimately we're trying to drive that transparency. I guess the other piece of impact that we have is just helping people understand more about their money. So you know, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but we were surprised initially about how little people understood about their pensions. And you know, most people don't even know they're invested. I mean, one of the things that we're trying to do at the moment is work out if, you know, can we build a platform that shows people how many Russian stocks they have inside their pension, for example. And, you know, people can start to tie their money to what's actually going on in the real world, which is you know, potentially super interesting for people and could create change in the long term. And I mean, firstly, I'm, I'm probably guilty of that as well, not knowing enough about how my pension money is being invested. But also, I think it's a very, very timely issue as well and i think larry think larry thing said it in his latest letter that every investor has the right to be hurt and really tomorrow is enabling for that to happen have you received some very tangible feedback from your clients um, and your beneficiaries on tomorrow and i guess also you know the impact that you have just described yeah so i guess we, we're looking for feedback from multiple parties so we want it from the end beneficiaries and yes, we do get feedback from them kind of saying that, oh, I didn't realize my pension was invested in companies. Um, you know, and sometimes that's positive feedback. Most of the time, sometimes it's like, heck, what have you done with my money? Like, Why is it invested in companies? And we have to explain to people what's going on. Because um, obviously, you know, we've not invested it. The pension providers invested it. It's just this person didn't understand. And then on the voting, obviously, we get feedback that people feel like empowered and like their pensions can be more aligned with their own values. Um, and it's not just pensions, we also work in retail. So often this is people that have proactively gone out and sought to make an investment in a fund and we can help them to feel more connected to that money that they're investing. And then obviously we report back on the impact. So if you go to our blog on Medium, you know you can see all of the posts about Starbucks CEO pay um, and kind of the, Delta, the climate change vote that was won at Delta Airlines or Exxon Mobil last year and then the kind of deforestation vote at Procter & Gamble, which was won, but then they haven't done enough about it. And so now they're, now we're trying to work out, you know, can we get a director removed to, to, to kind of pay for the consequences of not doing enough on deforestation? So all of these things are happening in the real world. And so we try to talk to beneficiaries about it. And then in terms of the pension funds, like, yeah, we get really good feedback um, people and, and from the asset managers too. Obviously, they get much more insight about who their underlying beneficiaries are. And that helps them not just to build better products and do better marketing and communications, but also to kind of meet regulatory requirements. So there's, there's something called the stewardship code, which asset managers and, and asset owners like to sign up to. Part of that is about understanding beneficiary preferences on ESG 
UMPRI is the principles for responsible investment talk about this as well and the implementation statement which is a pension specific requirement in the UK also uh, talks about kind of making sure that you as a pension fund are representing members in stewardship decisions so there's quite a lot of different areas where we can then help the pension fund and asset manager to be more proactive about stewardship and meet bare minimum um, regulatory requirements as well so this is a really really a changing landscape. Like there's a lot of policy change. Larry Fink's letter was like a bit of a moment in the industry. I think probably we weren't expecting things to happen as quickly as they are now going to as a result of what he's saying about underlying investors having a louder voice. So it's interesting. And I guess that means that our value proposition also changes because if if policy changes, then then the thing that we're able to offer also changes in, in, kind of in, in tandem. You mentioned ESG earlier. I, I just want to, you know, pose a question, I guess, for the table. Um, but starting with you, Georgia, what does ESG actually mean for you? And how do you translate for your various clients? Well, ESG, environmental social governance, is kind of a way, I suppose, to analyze a company, um, taking more holistic metrics, I suppose, into account rather than just looking at the financial statements that are released. Generally, people are approach ESG from a financial materiality standpoint. So, you know, is this issue of human rights financially material to Tesla? And, and if you think yes, then you need to do an analysis on that and include it in your investment decision. Um, I guess for us, it's more about kind of what is the outcome of ESG and, and is it negative screening and divestment or is it leaning in and engagement? And in most cases, we would say engagement is really, really important. Um, and there are some cases where that's not true. Maybe we see that kind of in the you know, situation at the moment with Ukraine and Russia, for example. And you can think of divestment a bit like a sanction. It's like taking something away from someone who's not doing enough. And sometimes that's really important. But in many cases with the large public companies like Tesla or Facebook or Google or, or Shell, I think engagement is quite important because we need these companies, certainly the big oil majors, we, we probably need them to, to transition and we need them to transition faster and walking away from them is is not really going to help us get to where we want to soon enough. But that doesn't mean you just stay invested and hope for the best. Like what you should do is kind of control them as a shareholder and make sure you've got directors on the board who know about climate change and have been through the transition with other companies before. And you've got, you know, the right employee representation and, and you've got um, really good disclosure. So you do understand that these companies are actually transitioning. And I would say that's what ESG means to us. It's like accountability and, and using your shareholder power to force change where it's not being seen fast enough. Yeah. I think very, very good answer and extensive answer. Carolina, Stephanie, do you share that interpretation or do you, you know, but do you have um, additional views on what ESG means to you and how you incorporate that then within your roles? Because, you know, um, you have, you know, Quite impactful roles as well so it would be good to understand how you um, translate that with your various clients and and your current roles yeah so I, I loved george's idea of engagement and i thought that was really interesting because i think esg for us is getting everyone in guernsey to engage but in their own way and um, trying to drive a positive impact and whether it is that uh, financially material esg risk consideration all the way up to impact investing and really making a positive difference you know maybe may uh, in exchange of returns so i think ESG is is a huge spectrum and it is where we can get people to commit and to engage on the level they'd like to. Obviously, hopefully reaching them beyond where they're comfortable, but you know, at the very least getting them involved in the early ESG risk spectrum all the way along to impact and philanthropy. Yeah, um I, I totally agree with that. And what you said also, Georgia, 
I think ESG for me is about actively pursuing that positive contribution to environment and, and social causes and being also genuine about it, being transparent. I think by adopting ESG, a company can still have the goal of making profit um, and it can still be its main goal, but not to the detriment of environment and society. I think I am going through my own transition journey, whereas when I, I started my career thinking that, well, ESG, especially the E of ESG, was um, a bonus or a nice to have in any project that I was involved to more recently it now being a deal breaker um, to being part of part of what I do, um, ad- adopting those um, ESG principles. I think that's a very interesting point, you know, the shift in, in what it means and how, you know, how well, important ESG is really becoming um, in everyday decisions. And speaking about effective decision-making, right, and we touched on that um, quite a bit so far, um, Tomello is really you know, bridging the gap between effective decision-making, but also data. How do you get access to the various data um, that you then share with your clients in order for them to have effective decision-making? Um, but also, how do you quality assure the data that you do get? Okay, so, da- I mean, Tomello is basically a data company, so we've got a lot of data coming in and out. When we show people what companies they're invested in, we get that data from fund managers. So we will go to the fund manager who's managing the fund, picking the companies, divesting from the companies, engaging with the companies, and we'll get a feed from them. Um, And they might have hundreds of funds with hundreds of companies in each fund. And so we get that data, which is, we think we'll quality assure it. We've got various methods in our backend systems, which will, you know, an, an alert will go off if it's 20% 20% different from the last time we received that data, for example. So we look into it and see whether there's any anomalies or whether it's just a change in the portfolio holdings. That's one example of a check that we do, but there's many of them. We then also pair that data with data from various other suppliers. So, so rather than just telling you you're invested in Tesla, we'll, we get a, a logo of Tesla. We, we get information about what Tesla does, um, where its headquarters are a link to the Wikipedia page, a link to the company website, kind of all of that is various different data feeds come through. And then we have another data feed which tells us when um, those company events are happening. So Tesla's AGM, um, when everyone will vote on various issues like the human rights one I keep referring to, was probably in September or October this year. And so we have got a data feed which will alert us. We'll then write up the AGM content and put it on the platform for for, normal people to be able to vote on and kind of understand understand and vote on in that order and so I, I guess for us an important part of our data is also kind of tying back to impact just collecting the data through the platform so people will vote on issues we'll collect that and we'll try and take information about you know, which which fund is this person in what pension provider are they with how old are they what gender are they any information that we can gather which will then be used to inform the fund managers, not on an individual level, but on an aggregate level about like who's voting what, why are they voting that, and kind of what reasons have they given. And all of that allows the fund manager to put into context the data that we provide back to them to say, look, 70% of your users are voting in favour of this issue. We really think you should vote in favour of this issue. And providing more data to them just adds a lot of weight to that argument. Um, and they know that it's come from their users. That's a really important thing for us. It's like verification. So we know that if someone's voting on a fund, 
they've got X amount invested in that fund and they really are an investor. So that when we're selling the data through to the fund manager, we say, look, these are your clients. Like you exist to serve these people. Let us tell you about them. Uh, and that verification point is quite important. That is interesting that you're basically serving both ways, you know, the fund managers, but also the, the individuals. Yeah. Um, Stephanie, can you just share a little bit more on your views, um, especially around the work with the UN? Because I think data or transparency around ESG-related data is one of the main issues. So I think you know that your work with the UN would also be a good example around that topic of, of data. Yeah, definitely. So I think issues and also kind of one of the key problems to solve is definitely around data. So Guernsey is a member of the United Nations Financial Centers for Sustainability. And um, as part of that group or that network, we do an annual survey where we go out to our Guernsey practitioners, our banks, our insurers, our asset managers, and we gather data and we ask them, you know, how many, you know, what's the number invested in green or brown assets? How many green bonds do you have, for example? And it's for us in Guernsey, it was really tough collecting that data. I think we were a little nervous when we submitted the data to the UN saying, you know, we've actually really struggled to collect this. I wonder if this is going to be useful. And actually what the UN said is that every member jurisdiction who's completed this survey has really struggled to get data. And that's for those much larger jurisdictions than, you know, a small island like Guernsey to, you know, really, really kind of large and small and large and small companies. We, we approach the large banks, we approach the small asset managers. So I think on, on all scales, everyone is struggling with data collection and data management. And like I said, if you can't collect the data, if you can't manage, you can't report on it, it makes the entire sustainability issue much harder to deal with. Yeah, and I, I can totally add to that. Uh, I completely agree. Data is the challenge of the century. And it's finding the accurate and relevant data, the big challenge, and how you translate that into something that is meaningful and allows investors, asset managers, banks, and all other stakeholders to make decisions based on that correct data. So that's why it's, it's, it is so important. So I think what... Tumul is doing by making that information available in a way that it, it's meaningful for its for the individuals investing or with with pensions is is so important. Fully agree, Karina. I think you had a um, a specific question on some of you know the potential issues that Tumul might have faced. Yes, yes, actually. So, linking to that challenge <laughs> topic. I wanted to ask you what main challenges you have experienced in, in making Tumula possible. You mentioned you you access lots of fund managers and I had a look at the website. You, there, there's some big asset managers there as well as smaller ones. So if you can talk a bit about, about that. Yeah. So what challenges do we face in making Tumula possible? We definitely struggle with data. Um, so yeah, what you two are saying rings true. Uh, we have to kind of partner with all of the fund managers independently or the asset manager houses independently. And that just takes time. It's not that there's resistance really from the asset managers. It's really just about making sure that we can get into their operational workflow. We can set up an automated feed. Then they don't have to actually do stuff for us. That, that then becomes a barrier to um, being able to work. I think um, we've got some great asset manager partners who are really proactive about making sure that they do get us the data and they get it regularly. Um, and that that really benefits. And we see that in terms of like, you know, users being able to connect with those asset managers more easily. They're getting the feedback from them, whereas other asset managers might have kind of blank spaces by their name because we don't have the data from them. 
And so that hopefully also encourages asset managers to work with us and give us more data so that users can make that connection and, and build that trust with them as a brand. In terms of the barriers, I think probably policy is one. Like there's this thing in finance, which maybe you were all very aware of, which is this idea of fiduciary duty. And I think it's been a severe limiting factor in the kind of uptake of ESG and the kind of listening to beneficiary voices and basically anything, any change in finance comes up against this idea of of fiduciary duty, which is really the idea that, you know, someone like a trustee of a pension scheme, for example, is entrusted to make decisions on behalf of beneficiaries in their best interest. and, And usually that's in their best financial interest. And so when you start introducing concepts like ESG, fiduciary managers start asking questions like, well, is this in the best financial interest of my beneficiaries or is this in the best interest of wider society and in the environment who I may care about, but I don't represent and it's not part of my fiduciary duty. And that debate is probably the biggest barrier. It's the, it's a huge barrier to ESG being adopted in the US because the, the previous administration put in lots of regulations about not being able to consider ESG within your kind of fiduciary duty um, which means that pension funds have just outright you know, not really adopted ESG, certainly not at the same pace that they have been able to in the UK. In the UK, there's been more work on this. But there is a kind of a question, which is a fair question of, you know, if my pension members and my beneficiaries tell me that it really, they really want me to vote in favour of a climate issue at Chevron, for example, and I think it's not in their best financial interest to do so, over what time frame is a question, but, but still that remains... What does the fiduciary manager do? They, do they represent the beneficiaries and what the beneficiaries have said, even though the beneficiaries might be less educated than them on this issue? Or do they go with the financial materiality argument? And you know, probably it, it depends on, on your view of what, what fiduciary duty should mean. And I think it should be more holistic. And also what time frame we're talking about. And in pensions, especially, we're talking for many people about 40, 50 year timeframes. And that is the period over which we should be considering what is in someone's best financial interest. And actually then you start needing to think about very complicated issues like environmentally driven inflation. You know, if we don't solve climate change issue, food prices will be very expensive when I'm 70. And so my measly pension may not cover them if we don't solve climate change issues now using the financial system. Um, but obviously, you know, you get into a very circular, circular argument there and, and it becomes really complex. So I would say that's, you know, a big issue for us is people's interpretation of fiduciary duty and that kind of changing landscape. I love that you've raised fiduciary duty. It's one of my kind of uh, personal projects that I've been working on. And in Guernsey, we released a report around fiduciary duty last year. We definitely saw the same as you, that people saw it as a conflict of investing sustainability and their fiduciary duties. And what we wanted to argue is, no, it's actually a core part of your fiduciary duty is to consider long-term risks. And one of those long-term risks is climate. So I absolutely agree with you there. It's super important. And there's lots of education to do around that. I wanted to ask you a question about um, getting funding in tech startups. It's typically a very kind of senior and male-dominated industry. What was your experience of raising capital and being a younger woman? And how easy was it to raise that capital and get to mellow off the ground? Yeah, it's been good. Um, I feel like no one likes that answer. Everyone wants me to tell. <laughs> it was really difficult. Um, you know, we've got a great idea. We've got a great team. We're doing something super positive for the world. And most people would say that anyway. And so we haven't struggled. I think, you know, I didn't know any investors going into this. I want to be clear about that. We've, you know, we've had to do like pitching competitions and 
oh, all sorts of stuff, like friends of friends of friends that I've kind of met through various accelerator projects. I've had a million investor meetings. You know, you, one person introduces you to another person, another person, then eventually you end up with someone super famous or super rich who's willing to invest. It's not straightforward. But if you graft, then, um, you know, it's very possible. So we've raised three, I guess we could, four rounds of funding. So the latest funding round has not been announced. But... Um, uh, we have just raised some money and we'll be announcing like what that looks like and who's involved um, in the coming weeks. And, um, you know, I guess the previous fundraisers that we've done, we've had great people involved, um, you know, famous people like Peter Gabriel and, and you know, really brilliant investors like Jeremy Collar, for example, who's who's super interested in animal welfare and, and runs Collar Capital, which is a secondary P firm. And we've also got lots of individual in angel investors who are you know, really passionate about what we do and and can also support us as well. So they're not just they're not just investing money, but they also will invest their time if we ask for it, which is super helpful and has definitely helped us grow. I think there's a quite a lot of networks there for, for female entrepreneurs. There is mentoring. I do agree with the kind of there's a general consensus, I think, among tech tech entrepreneurs, they're women, that we don't really need mentoring. We just need capital. And ideally, we want people on the other side of the table to be women. That's probably a big problem is that most people on the other side of the table and most people on my cap table, so the kind of list of 40 investors we have, I think two of them are women, maybe. Um, it's really, really small numbers of, of women that are actually investing in the capital. And until that changes, I think, you, know, you can provide as much mentoring for women as you want or as many networks, but I think you're really going to see a shift when it's the women that start investing. And I reckon that two out of 40 is probably actually quite good. Female ratio compared to lots of other businesses out there. So congratulations on that, I guess. Well, possibly. Um, yeah, I haven't, you know, I have to say, like, whenever I spoke to a female angel investor, is what they're called, I was always excited, but I didn't go and I didn't go out specifically to raise money from women. Um, like raising money is hard enough without needing to be overly selective about it. And we're already, you know, making sure that we're raising money from like more ethical investors or investors that care about our vision. So you're kind of already narrowing your pool slightly. Um, but it was always great when you came across women who had the power to invest. It's an exciting moment. One of them's on our board. So that's great too. I actually do want to come back to that uh, mentoring question um, a bit later on, but just in terms of the, the process of um, fundraising, I, I'm sure you know there is a natural learning curve for you um, behind that as well. Were there some massive key takeaways that you know makes it easier for you to go out now and you know your next funding rounds? Um, it, it's just going to be yeah a bit easier for you to do because you know you've gone through the pain in the first first rounds. Yeah, definitely. It definitely gets easier. I mean, not it doesn't get easier to raise the money, but it gets easier to know what you need to do, <laughs> I suppose. So it, you maybe do less wrong. I think like it's a process. It's a sales process. And I didn't really appreciate that initially. And, and what that really means is you have to be super organized. Like you need to know who your target audience is and you need to have a list of them and you need to have a spreadsheet with like steps that you're going through with every one of them and you're narrowing them down and you're getting no's quickly, ideally. And then you're getting to the people who are going to say yes. So thinking about it as a sales process is definitely something. So like this round, I had a crazy Excel spreadsheet and it was super organized and I had dates that I was meeting everyone. And, you know, that's wildly different than my first round where I was just firing out emails randomly. Um, and then I think, I think also kind of confidence and knowing that you don't need to be perfect, like knowing what, working out quickly what the important metrics are and then not striving for perfection on everything else and being really good at just saying, oh, we don't know that, but we don't think it's important right now rather than trying to have an answer for everything. And I think one of the things that helps is like speaking to other overly confident founders 
Because if you start to like interrogate other people's businesses and then you can quite quickly work out that, you know, they can talk a really good talk, but actually like everyone's got things that they just haven't solved um, or, or kind of metrics that don't look good or I don't know, whatever it might be. And I think it's quite easy to think that everyone else is really polished on the outside and inside when actually, you know, you really don't need to be to raise capital. So when I speak to other female founders, that's usually something I say is that, you know, you're probably, without being stereotypical, you're probably trying to go to market with something way more perfect than all of the men out there. So like, stop trying to perfect it, just go and ask the question and you're going to get feedback and then work on that feedback and focus only on that feedback. No, I think that's a very good point. And it probably applies to very different scenarios as well in terms of just going out there, not having the perfect product, but just going out there, get the feedback, work on it. Yeah. And I think there's quite a lot of like stats that say that about CVs as well. I think it's quite a similar process. Like what I don't know what it is. It's like if there's 10 things on a CV and a man has five of them, he'll apply. Whereas if a woman needs eight to feel like she can apply, it's something like that. But that thing I think applies in in the funding world as well, maybe. So there's something to be aware of. I want to shift gears a little bit, right? So I mean we're all aware that of of certain targets or goals that that we have going forward. And one of them is clearly not exceeding a 1.5 degree global warming. What are your observations on how we can get to that goal or essentially you know, making sure that we're not exceeding that target a bit quicker? Because I, I guess um, we agree that currently we might be a bit slow in terms of getting that, but how do you think we can get there quicker? Well, I think the pattern is a really progressive, privately owned, or you know, maybe public, Really owned companies do something very progressive. Then government realizes that it's possible, starts to kind of talk about policy and regulation, maybe releases some policy and regulation, and then all the laggards have to do it as well. And it feels like that's quite a good model for getting places quickly. I think generally from, from the conversations I've had, especially in kind of climate finance with government, there is definitely a resistance to kind of push the boat out in places where they're not sure private companies can go or the private sector can go, they kind of need to have seen it done. The minute you can say, look, this thing you care about in government, this company over here has actually done something very similar, you know, and then they've got a model for it and they can be like, right, well, if they can do it, everyone else can do it. So let's write it into a consultation or let's write it into policy. And and it kind of gives them the confidence to, to demand it from the rest of the private sector, I feel. And so that's really, I think, quite a good model is, is finding companies that, for whatever reason, it could be just marketing, but you know, it doesn't matter. Like as long as the company wants to kind of get the upside of doing something wildly progressive, then everyone else eventually has to follow suit. That's what happened really with Tomello, was we we found a great partner in LNG and then Aviva. And they really believed in what we were doing. It was core to their mission. It wasn't regulated. They didn't need to do it, but they did. Took a risk on us, really, and on the idea. And then, then it's become very easy to start talking to regulators and policymakers about, well, look, it's happening over here. These people have got data on their beneficiary preferences. So, you know, why don't we make it policy that everyone needs to collect data on their beneficiary preferences when it comes to ESG? And it's much easier to have that conversation now that it is actually physically possible and, and being done. I, I actually want to extend the question to Carolina and Stephanie as well. Carolina, what is your view, I guess, on how can we get there quicker? And I actually want to, you know, add a little extra to that in the sense that is it a, a, more of a generational question? Is it more of our generation's responsibility to get there quicker? Or is it a mix between the current or slightly 
more mature generation and the younger one, or you know, should the main responsibility, at least for now, be with the the older generation? Oh, I definitely think it's it's a mix. It's everyone's responsibility to to accelerate the transition to to a net zero world or a one point five degree world. I would say the role of Tumal on this, and and it, I think is great. You have. I don't, I don't know what your target or the most active clients you have, Georgia. I imagine it could be the younger generation that are, I don't know, tech-savvy, but but that is relevant for everyone because you'd have experienced professionals that have been contributing to their pension funds for decades, but they never had access to that data, to that information, never thought that they were allowed to vote or that they had a voice to influence any of the investment they have or some people like you said they didn't even know they had investments before so so they can they can do something so everyone can um is is so it's i think it's everyone's responsibility in terms of how much people are putting effort into it is a different question but it's incredibly important that those more experienced professionals also have that open dialogue with younger professionals like ourselves and it's like for example what Josephine is doing with with a podcast and, and network reaching out to to both sides of both generations um, bringing them together bringing the experience and the drive to to reach that sustainable economy and sustainable world I definitely agree I think that it is definitely all our responsibilities you know both young and old but you know, use use your strengths. You know, if, if you're a young person, if you're a student, you know, like George, to think about what kind of business you can set up to make a better world or attend a climate march, you know, use your strengths and use your passions in the way to do that. Maybe it's through use of arts or sciences, you know, use your passions and your skills to work towards this. But if you're an older person, if you have assets, if you're invested, or if you're a finance professional and you understand, you know, the, the complex finance markets and policies and so on, you, use your strengths and those towards the climate goals. So yeah, it's all our responsibilities, but don't be overwhelmed if you know nothing about finance. You know that's not your strength. You you should want to be your own strengths. I think that's a that's a very very good point, and and I fully agree. And that actually kind of leads me to the next question. While you should focus on your strengths and and use them to contribute, um, I I fully agree. But it also means that not everyone is set out to be a founder of a company, etc. So, you know, Georgia, clearly you've done it and uh, successfully as well. What do you think it takes to actually start your own business? And, you know, are there specific attributes that you think are, are key in order to be successful? I, so we haven't been successful yet. <laughs> we have a lot, a lot to do. So before I will feel like I can confidently say we have been successful, I suppose we're successful so far on our mission. And we have a great team of like 40 people. So it's really not just me either, um, even though obviously I'm the founder and I have two co-founders as well. Um, so I haven't been all alone on the journey of starting the company. However, yes, I think there are some qualities that you might want if you were a founder. One of them is resilience, like being able to go at it again and again and again and, you know, handle lots of fires and still get up in the morning with a big smile on your face so that the team feel motivated to work. Like that's some stuff that, that's something that maybe some people have and some people just don't. And if you don't have that, it's going to be a hard journey. But then most people have that about things they're passionate about, I feel. So it kind of depends you know, you say, what do you need to be successful? Kind of at what? Because you could definitely run a, a company that um, about something you're passionate about. And it doesn't need to become a high growth tech company as well. So it could end up, 
being, you know, a lifestyle business or a consultancy. And then maybe it's slightly lower pressure. You don't have to grow so quickly. But um, I think resilience is one, like empathy, self-awareness, like being able to make quick decisions on on whether you think people are good or, or not, both at roles, but also kind of generally on a moral setting and kind of do they culturally fit with you? Because that's really your job as a CEO anyway, is to find great people who uh, find great people who can help you reach the vision and, and fulfill the mission that you have um, and then make sure there's money in the bank probably is the other thing. So that's really my two goals. Make sure that the people that we've hired have got vision and, and that, you know, we're communicating the strategy. But if you hire great people, they should also be coming up with the strategy. It's not really just all on you either. So, yeah, I think that kind of self-awareness and gut instinct on people is also quite helpful. Very. I, I fully agree with you here. And would you say, you know, empathy, self-awareness, but also resilience are the traits of a leader and, you know, being a successful or a good leader as well. Um, and do you think they have changed over time? So, so yeah, I think that they are the qualities of being a leader. Like, I think if you're, if you have founded a business and you intend to carry on running the business, then you need to be a good leader. And that's something that I think, you know, it's not, obviously you can improve on your leadership and you can be more self-aware about good leadership and bad leadership. And everyone's going to have traits that kind of detract from their leadership I, I, I'm sure I have lots of them but generally yeah I think to be, to run a business you know you need to be a good leader and you need to be able to inspire other people to lead as well in terms of whether that's different I mean I don't have experience from 20 years ago right but um there's the kind of caricature businessman who is like really strong and kind of never vulnerable and you know always has a face on and I think people don't really expect that anymore you know I've cried in front of the team I think I fired someone once and then I went straight onto a team call and I just hadn't like prepared myself and I thought I was fine and I wasn't. And I just immediately was like, oh, <laughs> you know, but that, I think that's okay. Maybe don't make a habit of doing it every day. Um, the team might be worried about me. and I don't want them to feel worried about me. But, you know, there's an element of vulnerability, which I think is more acceptable in today's leadership style than previous leadership styles. And certainly there's way more of a focus on like empowerment and autonomy and kind of, you know, being really clear about what people's roles are and what decisions they can make within those roles and just let them get on with it. And that's what people seem to like. That's a really hard balance to strike because actually different people in your company, like some people want more guidelines than others, especially like grads, for example, coming into a role. Like, you know, generally people that have been in very hierarchical situations will come to Tamela and love it. And they'll be like, yes, I have so much freedom. Like I can make all these decisions. I'm really impactful. And the grads are like, Georgia, what am I meant to be doing? <laughs> can you give me something to do? And so kind of trying to find a balance between them is actually like an ongoing challenge. But I, it's not just us. I think every company that cares about empowerment has that problem. I talk to founders about it all the time. So um, that's not an exact science or a solved problem, but it is something that I think is focused on more in today's leadership than, than previously. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously it's not a science, as you said, but uh, you also mentioned self-awareness, right? So if you, I guess, self-aware, you can work towards... Um, Ideally. Yeah. yeah. Ideally, yes. <laughs> right. I, I um, want to come back to the mentorship question or the... Men so were there specific people or certain people in your journey so far? Um, and it doesn't have to be business related, but just general um, that have helped you get to where you are today and that have inspired you the most? Yeah, definitely. I think we've had lots of opportunities. So I think my family are all very entrepreneurial. So um, 
like my dad and his family, you know, they all run very different businesses, like marquee structures and self-storage businesses and shops, but, but they're entrepreneurial, they're risk takers. And it's been helpful, I think, to grow up around that and therefore not be afraid to kind of launch into it myself. And also the businesses are different, but the people problems are all the same. And those questions of responsibility and titles and hierarchy kind of just in every business, whether it's five people or 500 people, they come up. And then I think, uh, I've, you know, there's quite a lot of programs out there. So there's like accelerators and incubators and they've got all sorts of fancy names, so basically programs for people that want to start business with lots of people that will help them. And then we also have mentors kind of in different spaces. So like the HR space and the finance space and kind of business growth space and people that are kind of either bought into the business or they just really love about our idea um, and therefore want to support us. So yeah, mentorship's been super, super important in kind of every facet of what we've ended up building. I agree. And, and I actually you know, want to, before wrapping up and getting Josephine back into this conversation as well. Um, I, I actually want to ask Caroline and Stephanie as well, in terms of if there were specific people in their lives that helped them you know, progress and get to where they are today. So Stephanie, if you, if you want to give a quick. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I mean, firstly, I've loved working with Josephine and I'm really grateful for giving the, the youth voices on this podcast. I think it's been fantastic and, and loads of learning from People who've been working in the sustainability space for kind of those 15, 20 years, you know, before it was cool and before, you know, ESG was on everyone's list and really persevering there. I think that's been, you know, really kind of uh, motivating for me to see. I think, you know, like like, like Georgia, I have to shout out to my dad as well. Uh, he's uh, always been a very strong feminist father, you know, helps support me in whatever I want to do. And I think that's great. I think also that someone who's open to constantly learning is, um, is really inspiring he sent me an email about last week saying, how can I invest in the kind of things that you care about? And I think, you know, for him to do that, you know, it was great to see that he's looking to learn more and change his practices. And he's been in finance and business and for him to invest in sustainability is really changing his viewpoints, I think. So I'm really proud of that. I would have to, well, I have to agree with Stephanie. Um, and I don't mean that it's not because she's the main host of the podcast, but yeah, but just being, um, it's been, um, inspiring for me. I think we we have a somewhat similar background. She also has a, a legal background, like like I do, and transitioned from tax into sustainability. And she was a big inspiration for me to also make that transition uh, into sustainability. I was thinking about those people that have inspired me or are an inspiration for me as well. There is a um, a lady that probably most of you don't know. Name is Isabella Teixeira. She's a she's a former minister of environment for Brazil. She just she just knows a lot. She she's, her background is in natural sciences. She worked for the Brazilian government for a long time in the good old days when Brazil was the leader in sustainability. <laughs> Unfortunately, not anymore. And she's just very passionate. Uh, whenever I hear her speak, um, like, we need to do this. We need to stop doing this. It's not acceptable. Just, just a Brazilian female and leader, and, and I admire that. Thank you. I, I actually, you know, second what Stephanie Carolina said. Josephine is definitely a great mentor, and even though we had, we don't necessarily have similar backgrounds, I certainly have learned a lot in the short period of time I've known Josephine. And with that, it would actually be great, Josephine, to get your view on listening to this discussion and all the points that have been made um, if there are certain key learnings or key takeaways um, and also specific actions that you haven't thought about before but that you want to do now um, based on 
you know, being inspired, hopefully, by this conversation that we just had. Well, um, thank you, Philip, and thank you, everybody, for those very nice, uh, unexpected comments. Uh, I'm, I'm blushing here. Um, yeah, great question. I've been sitting here uh, listening to your speak uh, quietly, reflecting, and I have to say, I'm 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 in complete awe actually of uh, you, Georgia, in particular, in in terms of what you're doing and and the difference you're looking to make um, globally. Um, and and for, for for the three of you questioning in your sort of curiosity and commitment and passion to. Uh, the sustainable agenda, I find that personally incredibly inspiring. And I think that it's very easy to be overwhelmed by a lot of the climate science that we hear. I mean, even today, the IPCC report on adaption and vulnerability has been released. And, you know, we can see that things are accelerating and it's hard not to be overwhelmed by that and, and, and to question how we develop solutions but listening to you all I've I have no doubt absolutely no doubt that with your collective will um and and leadership that that will get there sort of feeling that that I'm certainly left with you know it's easy for the current generation of senior leaders to think that they have the roadmap as to how we get to net zero but you know, it's very clear that we don't and that what we need to get there is a huge amount of intellectual agility um, and adaptability ourselves in developing um, solutions as we move forward. So I think actively listening, you know, nurturing your passions, I guess, and willingness to act and, and step up to... Um, the challenge of leadership um, needs to be sort of positively nurtured and space given uh, for that leadership um, as well across all organisations. And I think that you are proving and have proven um, that it can make a difference. So I think for me, I'm, I'm going to continue for that even more so uh, and to allow for that sort of growth an opportunity to lead and really encourage it. Thank you, Josephine. And also, thank you very, very much, Georgia, for your time and your incredible input today. And I genuinely look forward to seeing Tumelo's and your journey going forward as well. Thank you very much for having me, all of you. It's been great to discuss today. And yeah, I'll also be watching what you've gone to do.